Would you remain standing as we turn now to the reading of God's Word and turn to your Bibles, Acts chapter 17. You'll find it on page 926 in the Pew Bibles. And I'm going to begin from uh, verse 16 to set the context for the couple of verses that are at the heart of what we'll be considering this morning. So from verse 16 to verse 34. Let's hear God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, He will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Do please sit down. Well, you could be forgiven for thinking that the question we are considering today is perhaps among the most thorny question uh, facing Christians in our world. That question is this, how do we relate to a changing culture? For years, uh, Western Christians have lived with an implicit, rather cozy assumption that while those in power may not themselves be Christians and While the culture around us may not be dominated by Christians, still the basic foundations of Western society are built upon predominantly uh, 
Christian lines. That idea no longer carries much weight for many people in our world. For starters, intellectuals of various stripes are constantly these days writing books and opining in their lectures that American foundations bear a mere glimmer of Christian influence in their origin and are at most deist, if not positively shaped by the forces of a secular enlightenment. And that European civilization, if it was ever Christian in its Middle Age Christendom uh, formation, is now, in their view, thankfully getting rid of those ideas that led to the horrible cultural specters of the Crusades and of the Inquisition. So the assumption, then, that the West is, broadly speaking, a Christian culture in origin, and that that is a good thing, that assumption is evaporating fast if it has not already gone. But more acutely even than the latest pontifications of the elite ivory towers, Christians themselves have become a little discouraged about their possibility of positively influencing the culture around, even when there are many Christians in that culture. The reasons for that are not hard to find. Whether you look at some quite, no, uh, quite well-known examples from the mission field of places which have had a strong revival history but have acted in, frankly, barbaric fashion in the recent past, or you look closer to home and feel some of the tone of Washington, or you just walk down the streets in our cities past large, impressive cathedrals and churches and also past homeless and impoverished people. You can't help but asking yourself the question, how do we relate to a changing culture? More broadly and more pertinently even, we could ask, how do we influence that culture now? Or how do we even change that culture? Is the answer Hollywood or politics or the financial industry or the university or the gospel? And if we all at some level agree uh, this morning that it is somehow the gospel, how does that not become a sort of privatized naivety that ignores the powers that be and the structures of our modern society that dominate and determine to some degree, of course, our culture and thereby our lifestyle. In short, how does the proverbial frog in the hot water turn the heat down? Or does he have to just jump out and separate himself from the quote-unquote world? Well, before we delve into how I think Paul helps us with this question and his interaction with the elite Areopagus in the center of pagan intellectualism in the ancient world, that is in Athens, we should make sure we define our terms clearly. For a word like culture is capable of many different glosses of meaning depending on 
who's using it and in what context. For instance, a man can be called cultured because he eats pâté foie gras. Or be called uncultured because he eats at the White Castle. But here we are using the term culture, not in the sense of developing sophisticated tastes or even a sophisticated education, but culture in the terms of the basic assumptions that rule, sometimes unnoticed, but still rule a particular society or even a whole country. Uh, That's why you can have also subcultures, where the implicit or overt rules are different from the larger culture, uh, 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 wider. So you can speak of the culture of a whole country, like America, or you can speak of the culture of Chicago. Now, the term is not infinitely flexible, because however hard precisely to define, we all know when we have broken a particular cultural rule, we have made a faux pas. And if we don't know, we soon find out by the looks we receive from those who are more intimately associated with that culture. We don't do that sort of thing round here, the looks say. Now, Richard uh, Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture, is the classic uh, book on this. It's it's rather long in the tooth now. Um, It's the textbook for seminaries and theological institutions. And he defines culture uh, by saying... This, culture is the artificial secondary environment which man superimposes on the natural. It comprises language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes, and values. And Niebuhr calls all of this the social heritage. Now, that's really quite a helpful definition. Though, as I say, it is pretty dated. It was published in 1951 or thereabouts, so quite a while ago now. And in fact, nowadays, we have actually, all of us, a rather different set of problems in terms of this question, or opportunities in terms of this question. And that different set of issues emerge from our regular connection with cultures not just in the Western stream of culture now, but from all around the world. And so, you know, on on our shelves at home or in in my study and uh, perhaps in your office or uh, above your mantelpiece or uh, next to this book or the other, you have books and artifacts of one kind or other, not just from Western civilization, but from Many different cultures and many different countries and subcultures. And in fact, we only have these days to open up our internet browser and we can be quickly inundated with very different cultural views. So the whole game has changed in many ways. But still, Niebuhr was helpful in a particular fashion as well as the general Uh, definition which he gave which is useful and this other way which he was helpful was that he he seemed to put his finger on the central difficulty of this whole question and that central difficulty is simply this that Christ did not found a state 
while Israel was a nation state, a theocracy, Christ did not sit as a king of this world. And his early disciples in the New Testament made no attempt to start a new Christian theocracy. Now, of course, since then, uh, Christians, uh, many Christians have often tried to do just that. For how do we relate to culture? Uh, what happens when uh, Christianity becomes dominant and is, in effect, the religion of the country by default? Or what happens when forces violently oppose Christians, as has often happened in history, and is happening right now around the world? Are Christians to separate themselves from the powers that be? Or cozy up to the princes of this world to protect the church? You see, it is quite fashionable these days in discussions and intellectual uh, rumination about this matter, to criticize Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, for marrying the church with the Roman Empire. And no doubt there is much there to be criticized as it unrolled throughout history. But when you read the actual historical events with sensitivity around that time, you find actually at least some good men, as it were, exasperated by division in the church and trying to create some form of unity uh, Socially and doctrinally. And later you find well-meaning men wanting not to be killed by the same Christian institution that had killed the Czech reformer Huss. And so Martin Luther, therefore, was well glad of the protection of the German princes. And so all this means is a little too glib to say that the answer to the relationship between the gospel and culture is simply just to preach the gospel. Because, well, what happens when you do that? You preach the gospel and people are converted and look for guidance then for how to live as Christians as government employees or businessmen or politicians or even soldiers. So somewhere along all this, of course, is Christ's great principle, which is the heart of our discussion uh, this morning, which is that we are to be in the world and not of the world, for which, uh, you may remember, he prayed for his followers. And as his followers, we certainly need his prayers to achieve that tricky balance of being in the world and not of the world. Well, Paul was one of those followers. And he was not only finely tuned in his balance in this regard, but he was also incarnational and missional. And there, it seems, lies the rub. Athens, of course, was the city of of, uh, Socrates, the great philosopher. And while by the time that Paul visited this famous university town, a lot later than that, Uh, Athens had become a little jaded and had passed its glory days well in its rear view mirror, it was still a vibrant community of intellectual discussion. And he found it so when he visited. And like Socrates, Paul engaged in intellectual discussion in Athens in the marketplace, the agora. And like Socrates before him, Paul was accused of a particular crime, 
that is, of advocating foreign divinities. Hence, a dangerous charge in this city that had not prevented a more famous uh, to them, that is Socrates, a more famous person from having to drink the hemlock for being accused of a similar crime and hence being killed. There are other interesting overturns with Socrates that Paul appeared to adopt in his relationship in Athens. His reasoning, it seems, was a kind of reasoning that was perhaps the question and answer Socratic method as we know it now of dialoguing to find out truth and expose the truth in the questioner. We don't know for sure whether he adopted that method, but the word suggests it perhaps, and it certainly would have been shrewd in Athens. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers with which he was debating, well, they represented two typical branches of attitudes to life and worldview in the ancient world and in many ways they're still the sort of typical attitudes that we find in in modern and postmodern society epicurean and stoic the epicureans were founded by epicurus in 341 to 270 bc and he had bequeathed to his followers the attitude that either the gods did not exist or they were so distant they had no real involvement in this world they had a very basic materialistic or atomic theory And they tended to emphasize pleasure and tranquility ethically, but they have been somewhat mischaricatured as being debaucherous or sensualists. In fact, they had a rather higher view of pleasure. The Stoics, well, they were founded by Zeno, 340 to 265 BC he lived. And they were called Stoics after the Stoa or the colonnade where Zeno taught, you see. Stoics, they stressed reason. They had a pantheistic view of God, a sort of whole world soul view of God. And morally, they, of course, emphasized individual self-sufficiency and duty. There are many details about them, but in some ways, throughout human history, there have always been Stoics and Epicureans, modernists and postmodernists, romanticists and more rationalists. We live with those things still today. And so with these interlocutors, these discussion partners, Paul then engaged, perhaps in dialogue. They misunderstood him, though. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That is, Jesus and Anastasia. And they thought that this meant that he was preaching about a male god, Jesus, and his female consort, Anastasia. Now, this is the first clue for how important this passage is for understanding how we all this morning, and it is important, how we are meant to relate the gospel to a very different culture these days. Here we find a classic case of miscommunication in a different cultural context. They were polytheists, all of them pretty much, believing in many gods, And without further instruction then, they were likely simply to adopt the Christian terms, Jesus, resurrection, but within their own worldview, and nothing much would have changed, in fact, in their belief structure. They would still be polytheist, many gods, but now added to their pantheon of gods would be now Jesus and Anastasia. This is a problem of what missiologists, those who study mission, call syncretism. 
And it's the root difficulty of being in the world, but not of the world, which the call, I think, of mission and incarnational Christian ethics addresses. So let's see how Paul does this. What does he do? Well, in a sense, his hand is providentially dealt for him, and he is called before the Areopagus. They want to hear more about it. You see, in ancient times previous to this, the Areopagus had been the civil court of Athens. But now it was probably more of a talk shop, a place for intellectual discussion, though still a very elevated and daunting body before whom to appear. If you like, Paul was being brought before the elite faculty of the University of Athens to explain what on earth he had been saying to the students in the college dining hall. Well, Paul duly complies. And it begins one of the most fascinating speeches in Acts, which has been examined at great length by commentators and preachers over the years. For our purposes this morning, though, the most interesting thing is how he begins. Now, you see, he had been caricatured as a babbler. That is someone who is picking up pieces of information at random and then sticking them together without much overview or forethought or philosophy that is coherent. They were saying he had no original thought, but was like the original word for babbler suggests, a bird pecking at pieces of information like birds peck at seeds. They were saying, Paul, you're a third-rate journalist, not a true intellectual in the Athenian class. And so how does he begin? Well, Paul begins this way. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, most commentators on this part of the story tend to spend their time, uh, their time trying to locate or validate that such idols with this sort of inscription indeed existed. And there are various suggestions, including an early one from Jerome that Paul took to their, their, their unknown gods, plural, and made it monotheistic to the unknown god. And more recent ones, that there is evidence that when altars needed repairing, inscriptions which have become indecipherable over time were replaced with generic titles, because they didn't know which god it was originally for, to the unknown god. But what really interests me, given now the historical accuracy of Luke's account as established, is, as I say, how Paul begins. For Paul, we were already told, was disgusted by the Athenian idols. They had turned his stomach. He was an Orthodox Jew who had been converted to Christ, and he believed in one God, invisible and indivisible, holy of holies. And here, the place was scattered with idols like a forest. Every city is. Our idols may be franchises or corporate logos or Palaces of commerce or temples of learning or deck chairs of somnolence. But every city is full of zones of ultimacy where gods compete for worshippers, proclaiming them as the highest good. Yet disgusted as Paul was, that is still where he began, to the unknown God. 
Now, there's the first clue to what I think is a better approach than Christ against culture or Christ of culture. One of the other five attempts that Niebuhr made to talk about this subject, save perhaps the last in terms of Christ transforming culture. What I mean is not that Paul is a sort of pseudo-universalist who thinks that people of other religions are worshipping the same God. He clearly does not, or he would have not risked his life to bring them to Christ. But that in all of creation, God has left his fingerprints. Now this really matters for how we relate to changing culture. Because we cannot take the head in the sands pietistic option of thinking that if something is not explicitly Christian, then it has no value, no God value even. For instance, what after all is Christian music? Is it music that has been written by a Christian? And is it no longer Christian if that music is apparently written by an artist who it is revealed is not living a Christian lifestyle? Is music Christian which explicitly teaches the gospel? It surely is. But then so only music we would sing in church, the great hymns of the faith, is that the only music that has general God value? What I'm saying is that in culture, even non-Christian culture, we are to be on the lookout for the signs of the creator God. Now, this is the approach famously adopted by Don Richardson in his account of his amazing mission experience in a book he wrote called The Peace Child. And it seems to be a similar approach that Paul is adopting here. He goes on to explain that God does not live in temples made by man, about as controversial a statement to make to an ancient polytheist as you couldn't make. And then he starts with creation. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope they might feel their way toward him and find him. He then quotes from two pagan poets to underscore his point, that pagan history and pagan culture is still embedded with the footprints of God designed for us to follow to draw us to Christ. We don't have to call everything Christian if we find it is good. We just have to call it created. That is a Christian attitude taught us by the Bible. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Taught by the Bible. But the poet Epimenides and the poet Aratus were not Christians, uh, the ones that Paul quotes from. Uh, They were created. And in their created creativity, they have glimmers that for those who are attentive and in whom the Spirit is at work are shards of light from the Creator that in the proclamation of the gospel now can be turned, as Paul does, to shine upon Christ himself. Lest, though, Paul's exploitation of the cultural whole in Athens of the unknown God be taken to mean that Paul was a cultural accommodationist. He always went with whatever the culture was saying. We also need to note how much he deliberately put himself at loggerheads to that Athenian culture. 
Yes, he affirmed what he saw in it that was reflective of the creative purpose of God, but then he also denied what he saw in it that was reflective of the fallen depravity of man. For you see, every culture has that in it too, even English culture. Hard though it may be for some of us to believe. Even Christian culture, in the sense of this project of humans trying to build civilization, in the project of being in the world but not of the world, that has fallen aspects to it. In the end, you see, we cannot shut ourselves up from the world by taking ourselves out of the world, for the world is within us. You can build high walls from the world, and at times you certainly should, to distance ourselves from the evil that is dominant around and its pervasive influence. But monasteries are no less full of sinners than banks, for we're all sinners. The Christian way is to seek redeeming grace to gradually change our lives and our cultures and our churches more into line with Christ's way. But that journey in this world is never finished. You only have to read Paul's missionary journeys and especially his letters to the churches to realize it's not just non-Christians who are in need of the gospel, it's Christians too. We all need to learn to forgive, to receive What could even be harder? Forgiveness. To have opportunities to start again, to express the regenerative principle of having been born again. And Paul, as he turns to the culture around of Athens, may begin with the space, the question mark that in God's sovereignty their worship of an unknown God had created. But that is not where he ends. He ends with a call to repentance with a proclamation of the resurrection bodily from the dead and coming judgment. And all these things would have and did strike the Athenians as absurd. This is the other half, perhaps in our day the more important half, of relating the gospel to a changing culture, my friends. It's all very well to find cultural space, the unknown God, and explore that and explode that and build upon the cultural question marks, the sense of need, the line of despair, as Francis Schaeffer called it, in Western civilization once it began to reject Christian morality and truth. The contemporary movies or books that raise questions for which only the gospel can be the answer. That's all very well and indeed acutely necessary. But if that is all that is done, then the inevitable result is a new form of syncretism. We'll build a new Christianized society that's not really Christian and not very social. Instead, we need confront culture and not simply sidle up to it with a smile. So Leslie Newbegin was surely right when he said this about the need for confrontation. It is often said that the failure of the Western churches is of the first kind, irrelevance, failure to make contact. I want to suggest, on the contrary, that it is a failure of the second kind, that the Christian churches of the West have been so co-opted into our culture that we have lost the power to challenge it and hence perhaps to change it. 
New Begin was right to call for challenge, but it is a balance. In the world, not of the world, missional, contextual, incarnational. If we are only challenging, we are like people in glass houses throwing stones, for we certainly need some challenging ourselves. But if we're only listening, we are liable to accept several Trojan horses into the city of God and should not be surprised if the new Christian project turns out to be not much better than the old Constantinian kind. We must listen to the culture and observe in the culture the hand of the Creator God, yes. But then also be realistic that all, even at times, Christian culture in the sense of the human project around the gospel that we build, even that is fallen and therefore likewise speak to our culture with a word from God about the need for repentance. Well, my friends, those two approaches, it seems to me, are the way to guard against irrelevance on the one hand and syncretism or compromise with the world on the other. For they are the model of Christ who came into the world to save the world. They are the purpose of the church to be in the world but not of the world. And hence they are the point of the gospel. We'll be thinking more about that uh, this evening as we delve more into Jesus as he was meant to be in our series in Mark's gospel. And there'll be opportunity for Q&A, question and answer after that this evening. But let's bow our heads now in prayer and ask for God's help for us to be authentically Christian in the world, but not of the world. Father, we pray that we would not compromise, that you would keep us from overt and hidden sin both as individuals and as a church and as a Christian movement. And we also pray, Lord, that we would not be lacking in creativity, but see with a a creation worldview, your hand, Father, working behind the scenes, even in non-Christian cultures, to provide proclamation space into which the gospel uh, can land and grow and flourish. So we pray for your help in this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.